Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Holwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we're going to be looking at the topic of survival horror. But first, the news. Well, the first thing that's going on is we are finally moving into the end stages of playtesting a poison tree. There's light at the end of the tunnel! Yeah! This has gone on for a long time. Uh, When I was talking to my playtest group the other night, uh, we tried to work it out how long we'd been doing it, and I thought it had been three years. And no, it's over three and a half years we've been playtesting now. So this is the campaign that three of us are working on for Pelgrane Press. Yep, Trail of Cthulhu campaign, epic campaign taking place over 350 years, and it doesn't quite play out in real time, but... (laughs) And speaking of campaigns that we've written, uh, Seth Skorkowski, uh, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with, who does fantastic videos on YouTube, uh, has started doing a a series of reviews of The Two-Headed Serpent. Spoiler alert! Yeah, they are rather spoiler-heavy. Well, I say they, there's only one so far. But he's launched into talking about the Bolivia chapter. And th- these these reviews, I mean, they're aimed very much at keepers, obviously. It's not just that he's reviewing the, the content, but he's also talking about his experiences of playing it or running it. And also, you know, the things that, that he wanted to tweak or had to tweak for his group in order to make it work for them. So if you're looking at running the campaign, this would be a good thing to watch and reflect upon before you go into those chapters absolutely i always think that'd be kind of handy because reading through a campaign or scenario i find i have to read it through it a couple of times and then kind of think about it and and try and sort of personalize it myself but having somebody else who's already run it talk about the highlights and the flaws and so on that that would be really useful Mm. and paul i understand you've just recorded an interview with susan o'brien from chaosium about uh, a new kickstarter Yes, indeed. Chaosium have a Kickstarter out for a new board game called Miskatonic University, The Restricted Collection. And I have a 10-minute or so interview, and we're going to have that up at the end of the show. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word is lurking. It's an adjective, one, lingering and persistent, though unsuspected or unacknowledged. Two, dimly perceived. In their very nature, these things are vital parts of horror. You know, lingering, dimly perceived, that's quintessential thing in the shadows, thing under the bed, in the attic those things lurking around in the house that you're not quite aware of but you perhaps hear yeah absolutely i mean you know if if you're sitting in a room in a dim room and you think you can see a shape lurking around the fact that you don't perceive it you know fully you don't perceive it directly that makes it all the more frightening you'll find out afterwards it's just your coat hanging up on the back of the door or something like that but for that moment mm, and I suppose Lovecraftian horror in a lot of cases relies on these insidious influences. There are things lurking around at the edge of our perceptions or you know, at the edge of our reality. 
And this is probably why, you know, Lovecraft, for example, had the lurking fear and Derlith had the lurker at the threshold. Also makes a nice piece of alliteration for the Armitage House collection, the, uh, the lurker in the lobby. Oh, yeah. The Lovecraftian oh, yeah. Uh, film review. And on the Lovecraftometer, appearing 38 times in his main fiction as lurking and another 46 times with variants of lurk. It's a good word, lurk. It is. It's, it's like a, lurch. It's a mm. fun word to say. In fact, let's all say it together. Lurk. Well then, let's take a look at how Lovecraft himself used the word lurking. From the dreams in the witch house. The darkness always teemed with unexplained sound. And yet he sometimes shook with fear lest the noises he heard should subside and allow him to hear certain other fainter noises which he suspected were lurking behind them. And from the shadow out of time. And were those others, those shocking elder things of the mad winds and demon pipings, in truth a lingering lurking menace, waiting and slowly weakening in black abysses, while varied shapes of life drag out their multi-millennial courses on the planet's age-wracked surface? And from the haunter of the dark. But his worst fears concerned himself, and the kind of unholy rapport he felt to exist between his mind and that lurking horror in the distant steeple, that monstrous thing of night which his rashness had called out of the ultimate black spaces. And now on to our main topic, survival horror. Let's first establish what do we mean by survival horror? Well, I guess... The main thing about survival horror, obviously people are trying to survive. The protagonists are trying to survive. Now, there's something out there inherently which is trying to kill them off, right? Yeah, I mean, it can be an active force. I mean, it usually is, you know, something hunting them, something stalking them. It might even be purely environmental. It's the fact that the investigators are reacting to a horrible situation that is threatening their lives and trying to survive through it. I was just going to put it down to a really basic, you've got lots of people running around, hiding out, and gradually the cast diminishing throughout the rest of the film. Done. There are certain key elements that we see in a lot of horror come to the forefront more in survival horror, and I think those big ones are isolation and helplessness. And often the use of violence against this adversary. I think that's a, that's a common thing of, of tooling up, whether it be with guns or axes, barricading yourself into a, a house against something that's trying to break in. Violence is common thread in these stories. It, it is, but in a lot of cases it's not as effective because you're talking about surviving against a hostile environment, superior numbers, something that is incredibly more powerful than you, uh, or maybe something that you just can't quite perceive properly for various reasons. Maybe it's particularly good at hiding and stalking, or maybe there's something about the environment that makes it difficult for you to perceive it. But it's that feeling of being out of control of the situation. It often comes to violence, but that's somewhat ineffective. And as Matt said, you've got that thing of dwindling numbers. When you do face the foe, you don't overcome it. You just kind of allay it for a little while. There's perhaps attrition on both sides that you're fighting against this force. Maybe it is superior numbers. I'm, you know, say it's something like a home invasion film. You know, you've got a number of people who've broken in and a couple of people hiding in the house for their lives and every now and then picking off one of the opponents. 
classic along those lines, Assault on Precinct 13. You know, waves and waves of gang members breaking into this old police station while they're trying to protect some of the, the prisoners and witnesses in there. The numbers of the gang and their relentlessness make them impossible to really sort of defeat in a, a straight fight. But on the other hand, there is this feeling that they are slowly wearing down on both sides. As with any genres, and you're trying to pigeonhole things, I think there are lots of outliers, or not even just outliers, just lots of things that kind of fit, but are they quintessentially of that subgenre? So Jaws, is that survival horror? You know, their numbers are slowly being decreased, but there's not that many of them to start with. There's only three on the boat, right? I mean, there are other people earlier on in the film, but is it even a horror film? I think a lot of people would call Jaws a horror film. I, mean, we'll, I think we'll get into you know talking about particularly horror films a bit more in the next segment. But in, in terms of defining the terms here, yeah, I think Jaws is an interesting example because I, I wouldn't consider it survival horror. It does have that sense of isolation in the latter part of it because they are out on the boat and they're you know, isolated and under attack from this creature. And it is quite a powerful thing. But it is much more... I think about the fight. There isn't, I, I don't think, quite the same sense of desperation in Jaws that you get in some other films. I mean, it, there, there is a bit, but I don't know. It doesn't strike me as, as having that, that hopelessness, uh, you know, that, that we're fucked feeling. Um, mm. You know, that, I mean, that bit comes up and, you know, ultimately they are, but I don't think the characters perceive it in that way, at least not initially. They're, they're overconfident. They find themselves out of their depth. Uh, but it, it doesn't feel like survival horror to me. So what about slasher films, then? Yeah, I, slasher films, I think, are an interesting edge case because I think the thing that stops them being survival horror is that most of them tend to concentrate on a one character rather than you know a whole group of characters the final girl character you know, the, the rest are window dressing and you know, are there for those repetitive kills and it's much more about the kills that's the focus of it but it's a question of the intent and the focus of the filmmaker some slasher films do focus on the survival aspect others focus much more on here let's show a lot of cool ways in which people can be murdered hmm. it's also the antagonist is usually in those instances a single person or single entity that maybe has a slightly upper hand. It might have a superior set of skills. It might have a supernatural bent on it, thinking like Nightmare on Elm Street. But it doesn't have that overwhelming, oppressive, massively superior numbers kind of aspect that a survival horror flick would. I think there are cases where a single entity can you know, create a survival horror film, but it's the fact that this thing cannot be fought that makes it feel like survival horror. The focus is is more, more on surviving the experience. Mm -hmm. um, well, it can be fought, though, right? Yeah, but just not until some great climactic cathartic scene. It also seems to me that with a survival horror, people are clubbing together against whatever the the, yeah. the adversary is whereas with a slasher they're not really clubbing together they they can just be isolated teenagers or whatever in their own homes um, they're not really clubbing together and barricading themselves in against you know a common foe in the same way 
Well, we talked a little bit there about you know what kinds of of opposition you can face in survival horror, and, and I mean thinking about you know particularly films, you know zombie films. Some of them do come in, in into this uh, subgenre. I guess it depends on again what the focus of the film is, and if you think about you know something like the original Night of the Living Dead, or you know maybe some episodes of The Walking Dead. The zombies in it almost become, at times, an environmental hazard. Um, you know, it, it's not like you know a monster that that you're you're fighting. It's this all-pervasive thing that is making your situation untenable, dangerous. But I would say that is very much survival horror, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah it seems hard to talk about survival horror without mentioning zombies. Also, the Hollywood studios use uh, any adversary they can come up with, pretty much. Oh, absolutely. However yeah. feasible. Um, so we have such things as werewolves, aliens, robots, sharks, crocodiles, pretty much anything that can get you and kill you. They're gonna they're gonna throw at us. Yeah, or, or people. I mean, you know, you got mutant cannibals like in the Hills Have Eyes. Uh, um, you know, uh, hunters hunting people like in the Most Dangerous Game. Mm. Um, and and yeah, it, it can be anything that is sort of actively hunting people. I just wanted to double back to crocodiles there. There were a couple of Australian films that came out some years back, uh, almost at the same time, which I think are a couple of the best survival horror films I've seen. One called Rogue and another called Blackwater, uh, both of which involve isolated groups of people being stalked by saltwater crocodiles, these big Australian crocodiles that grow up to 20, 25 feet long. Blackwater in particular pretty much almost takes place entirely with a character or a couple of characters stuck up a tree in this swampy bit uh, of ground uh, with this crocodile stalking them just trying to find a way out. It is one of the tensest films I've seen. I remember um, Alligator from back in the 80s. I remember watching that when when I was younger and some of the cheesy effects in there. And pulling a guy out of the river and having basically his legs gone, um, then, then it's hiding in a swimming pool where no one happened to notice at a birthday <laughs> yes. party and it just eats the kid as he drops off the diving board. I, I'd argue against Alligator being a survival horror film because it's much more of a classic monster movie. Yeah, it's, it's a bit more in the sort of, kind of Jaws vein, really. Yeah. Going hunting the beast and then having your confrontation down in the sewers. But, but I think it's actually that's an interesting idea that helps pin down what the difference is in that. In Alligator, you had this monster sort of rampaging through the landscape, killing lots of disparate people. You have someone following it, trying to investigate it, trying to get to the bottom of what's going on, contain the situation. But the victims, the people in peril, are different in almost every scene. So it's not like this core group of people fighting for survival. It's also, as you mentioned, investigation. That's almost like an afterthought in a normal survival horror. Yeah. There's plenty of cool ways of MacGyvering your way through this, uh, through a situation. There's maybe the occasional bit of info you can pick up along the way which might give you an idea of what to do later, but it's, it's definitely an afterthought. Yeah, I mean, the, the big place I'd say where investigation can come into a survival horror is if you're up against something that appears to be invulnerable, learning what its secret is, learning what its weakness is, learning some way of protecting yourself. I, I'd say that's where the investigation side comes in. But that is, you know, that happens in a small subset of survival horror stories. Another perhaps common factor with survival horror is some form of resource management. So that might be typically running out of ammunition, running out of food, running out of air, maybe. Or the self-destruct mechanism has been triggered off and we've got to get out before it goes. 
uh, there's something that induces a sense of increased panic and increased risk. Another thing we see sometimes which sort of ties in with what we were talking about with the investigation aspect is um, you know, a gimmick sometimes in some survival horror where there is this thing that will perhaps under some circumstances keep you safe. So, I mean, if we're looking at, at films as, as influences here, Don't Breathe, for example, you know, you've got a group of characters who are safe only as long as they can keep quiet and they're, you know, they're, they're desperately trying not to make any noise and attract attention to this blind psychopath who's got them trapped in their house. There's, uh, you know, Pitch Black, uh, where you've got monsters that are afraid of the light, and as long as the characters can stay in a pool of light, they're, they're safe from getting eaten. But, you know, they're, they're, their power supplies and, and, you know, torches or whatever are dwindling, and at certain points they'll get plunged into darkness. So that's another form of resource management, I mean, yeah. batteries for the torch, which, you know, they always go out at just the wrong moment, don't exactly. they? Exactly. <laughs> So in survival horror, it's almost always that the protagonists are clubbing together against some external threat which is coming at them. They haven't necessarily gone out looking for it. Perhaps they went out looking for it and triggered it off, but now they're on the, on the run. They're on the back foot. Whereas in a game like Call of Cthulhu, more often we see there's some sort of horror out there and the player characters are going out purposefully to investigate and putting themselves in danger. Yeah, I mean, pure investigation is a proactive thing. Pure survival horror is a reactive thing. I mean, there's plenty of cases in Call of Cthulhu where the two you know, blur into each other, um, or where investigation will turn into survival horror when you, you, you learn too much, or where survival horror will turn into investigation where you're trying to find that secret that's going to save your life. Mm-hmm. And now we have a look at what inspiration can we find for survival horror in the media. If you Google survival horror, almost every hit that comes up relates to video games. But I think it fits that mode really well because even if we go back to the you know some of the earliest games like Space Invaders, you had a little spaceship to shoot all the invaders. You were trying to survive. It's not survival horror. I'm not trying to say that. But it's just you on your own, you die, you press reset, you play again. Um, so that's a very easy mode for a computer game to sort of fit into because it's you, just one person against the machine, right? That suits computer gaming well. So that's a form of horror that can be emulated with a computer and one player. Yeah, and I think another thing that we see a lot in survival horror games, on, uh, in video games, is that helplessness aspect of it as well. I think this is something that's easier to enforce in a video game than it is in a role-playing game, which is the idea that you cannot fight your opponent. Call of Cthulhu players quite often come up against big, nasty creatures. A lot of the time, they will try to fight it. It may prove to be completely hopeless, but... What you can do in a video game, and I've seen a few games that do that, is, is just not even put in the controls, the mechanics that allow that violent interaction, that your options are running away and hiding. So you get games like Amnesia The Dark Descent, for example. I've only played a little bit of it because it terrified me. You know, this is why I don't play a lot of horror video games, because they scare me too much. You're in this this really spooky location, there are things stalking you, horrible things that you'll encounter... And you have no way of interacting with them without dying. It's like a nightmare. All you can do is is run and hide and cower and hope that it doesn't notice you. 
I remember another one I played, which is, I, I think was similarly spooky for subtly different reasons, was was Fatal Frame, an old PlayStation game. Again, you know, you were encountering you know, malevolent ghosts, and you couldn't do anything to harm them, and more vitally, you couldn't even see them. The only tool you had, instead of you know, a standard video game where you're running around with a gun or a knife or whatever, the tool your character had was a camera. And if you took a photograph, you could see whether there was a ghost there and react accordingly. And so you know, you're just running around with this camera, you know, taking snapshots, trying to see whether there's something invisible lurking around you that's about to kill you. And that was spooky as fuck. <laughs> So what about films and books? I mean, a classic that just occurred to me as we were talking, of course, when we were talking about resource management, overwhelming odds, struggling to survive in small enclaves, would be Day of the Triffids. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, if that's not survival horror, I don't know what is. I'd say that definitely is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think the only example I can think of, I've read of, exa- of survival horror would be The Woods Are Dark, the um, Richard Lehman novel. It's from memory starts off with groups of cars going down a road and they're basically stopping in this small village and getting stuck in the woods and they're just progressively hunted down by the townsfolk who worship this thing that lives in a pit in the middle of the woods. Oh, right. It's kind of somewhere between slasher and um, and survival horror. I mean, I guess any horror film, there are things out there that are trying to either kill you or do terrible things to you in some other form and you're trying to survive in the face of that. So almost every... every supernatural horror film is a survival horror film but you know if we can narrow down our frame a little bit as we discussed in part one of the show that isolation and an unforgiving environment is a big part so i think one of my favorite films along these lines would be the descent because you had this this group of women these cavers who have gone into this this dark cave going through very narrow spaces the whole environment is is almost set up to kill them anyway they have limited resources in terms of light they don't really have any weapons and then they discover they're not alone down there a bit like you said with the video game with the camera is it night vision goggles or something they have that they allow to see one of the the monster things down in the caves oh, it's the handheld camera right is it mm-hmm. is it the camera? Yeah. Yeah, and they can see it right there in front of them, but <laughs> until then they, they weren't aware of it. Yeah, yeah it's, because it's, it's, it's standing right behind one of them. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that is a great example of survival horror because it doesn't feel like a slasher film in that you're not really concentrating on the monsters. It's not seeing it from the monster's point of view. It's not, you know, the monsters are going around stalking these people and we're sort of getting inside their motivation, uh, their headspace. We're seeing it entirely from the point of view of the people trying to survive and the desperate things in this environment they're doing to have to do so. Another one from the books that occurs to me that is could be categorised as survival horror, Shadow of Rinsmouth, where yeah. our protagonist goes into this lovely old seaside town and... You know, he starts to uncover things, but pretty soon he's on the run and he's being hunted down by all these fishmen and trying to escape and trying to survive as he flees through the streets. Well, I think one of the things that, that makes that interesting from a Lovecraftian point of view is that it's perhaps one of the few Lovecraftian protagonists who isn't taking an intellectual curiosity in what's going on, that he's not really, tr- uh, at least initially, trying to uncover things. I mean, he's he's travelling through Innsmouth. I mean, he's interested in the place, but he's Well, not- he's interested in his own heritage, right, isn't he? Well, I mean, that, that isn't there to begin with. I mean... I mean uh- 
at least it's only, you know, I think distantly alluded to. It's not so much that he's investigating horrors and, and you know, sort of uncovers a bit more than he wants. Mm. I mean, he's simply someone who is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. And everything that he does from that point is reactive. Until the end, I don't think you can say that about too many other Lovecraftian protagonists. I think you're one where it's, I'd say, the environment is probably more of a threat. The ruins. Um, oh, yeah. I remember that being a great film. Particularly any plant that can make a noise like a cell phone, definitely that's the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty cool. And perhaps survival horror is something we do occasionally see in Call of Cthulhu scenarios. Thinking of the great old one himself, Sandy Peterson, last year came up with The Derelict. Yeah, I played an early version of that with Sandy at Tentacles, probably about 10 years ago. And, yeah, I mean, that was pure survival horror. You're out in the middle of nowhere, you're on a boat uh, that, you know, stumbles across a derelict vessel. And, you know, by the time you, you realise what's going on, there's just no escape and all you can do is try to survive against hostile forces. And again, you know, it's the environment that makes this. It, it, you know, the fact that you're out in open waters enforces the isolation and Paul, you wrote a sort of survival horror scenario, didn't you? Yeah, um, some fell on stony ground. The second part of that, that's one of the scenarios in Nameless Horrors. The second part of that sort of switches to survival horror mode um, as things go wrong in the in the small town. I mean, I guess another thing that sometimes occurs in survival horror is that sense of surviving till dawn yes. or surviving till a certain time, you know, till the cavalry turn up almost. Yeah. You know, some deadline, we've got to survive until. Yeah, I mean, you know, thinking about from dusk till dawn, for example. Right, or vampires are the essential survive till dawn, isn't it? Yeah. And I suppose most commonly, as opposed to surviving till dawn, in a lot of films what we see is they are, as we've said, in an isolated place, they're trying to escape, and the dawn is getting back to civilization. Yeah, or help arriving. Yeah. Uh, but a contact with the outside world. Yes. I guess so you're no longer isolated. Let's take a look at how we would run a survival horror game. Well, we've talked now a lot about the elements that we consider make up survival horror. Let's focus on how we'd bring these to life in a game. And I think, you know, the first thing that I'd consider is trying to downplay the effectiveness of combat. Well, not just that, but try downplay any focus on combat. I mean, whether this means having characters who aren't skilled with weapons or don't have access to weapons or making it clear from the outset that whatever they're fighting you can't necessarily be hurt by by uh, the weapons they have because i mean sure you can have the occasional action scene where you know people try to fight the creature off with a chair or a, you know some kind of handheld weapon but if you just have scene after scene of oh you know we pull our guns out and we shoot at it until either we get away or they get away but then that's then, not survival horror no. is it that's if you can kill the things there's got to be loads of them, as we see in zombie films. Yeah. Otherwise, if there's just one thing out there, then the best we can do is maybe force it back or think we've killed it. I mean, thinking of Alien, right? There's only the one monster on the ship, and we can fight it with flamethrowers and guns and so on and keep it at arm's length. Well, I don't know. Do they even fight it off temporarily? 
not, think they not in the original it. Alien. Yeah. Um, no, I, pretty much anyone who encounters it just dies. Because, yeah. You know, the, I mean, that's the difference between Alien and Aliens, which is why I think Alien is the far superior film, in that um, you know the the characters in Alien are not combat uh, ready. They you know they are space truckers. I, I I found Aliens a huge disappointment because it took all that tension and horror and so on and made it into an action film. And well, it's an action film. It is. Yeah. yeah. And vastly uh, more quotable. Yeah. I, I don't know. It just seemed to undermine everything that made the original horrific. So I think I wouldn't necessarily avoid combat, but I take on board what you're saying about making it not the focus of it because yeah. it has to be that combat is somewhat ineffective against this adversary, I think, for it to be survival horror yeah you're buying time you're buying the opportunity to get away you're not fighting to win you're so what, fighting to survive so what are you doing if you if you can't you know blast it with the tommy gun what are you doing who knows so you're you're doing things like being stealthy um trying to sneak past it maybe laying traps or, or if you do end up in that situation where you're cornered, you know, you're, you're, you're in the room, the beast is smashing through the door, you are perhaps, you know, grabbing, you know, the nearest improvised weapon you can, hitting it in the face a few times just to try to drive it back while everyone else gets out through the window. So acts of heroicism come in there. Yeah. And self-sacrifice. Also, how would we run a survival horror game? As we said about resources being an important aspect of it, so actually counting the ammunition counting how much food they've got how many batteries they've got either actually been counting or some abstracted method of gauging you know with a roll or something to sort of see you know has it exhausted itself yet yeah i mean I actually you know the the black hack and uh, by extension the cthulhu hack has this idea that instead of managing your resources specifically that you roll at you know, various stages to see whether you've run out of the resources and that's perhaps quite a good way of doing it because it introduces that element of uncertainty and hence fear but also dramatically as we often see in films all the things broken in i shoot it bang click 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 yeah oh shit i've run out they're not aware of how much ammunition they've got until it runs out uh, that's a technique as well i remember from uh, jailbreak where you've got the one gun in the party and no one quite knows how many bullets are in it yeah when i've run it before i i've, I've used the technique i stole from someone online i can't remember who it was where i actually give the person with the gun a cap gun mm -hmm. that's got that many caps in it and i don't <laughs> tell them and i sort of say right every any time anyone shoots the gun you shoot that gun there and the reaction at the table the first time there's a you know really horrible situation someone grabs the gun to try to save their life and it goes click yeah, it's far more palpable than you know, than actually just telling them, oh, you're out of ammo. And I think having some sort of props like that is good as well, because it definitely says who's got that thing, whether it be the torch or the gun or whatever. Because typically with role players, everybody's got that one torch when they yeah. need it. But if there's an actual prop, then great. Yeah, thinking about the example of, of Unknown Armies, it has the idea that the players never know how many hit points or what, what's effectively hit points their character has, that the GM tracks or that. And it introduces that element of fear and uncertainty. So, you know, if, if you've got a game where you, you perhaps the amount of ammo you've got or the amount of medical resources or, you know, the, the, how long your battery life is, is important, 
then if the GM tracks that and doesn't tell the players until it runs out or hits a crisis point, then that I think that's far more tense. I think that battery life is a good example. With bullets, you can actually count them if you take the time, as you said. With battery life, you can look at your phone, oh, it's got 10%, and the next time you look, it's 3%, and then it's gone seconds later, Yeah. particularly if, you know, if it's a bit of an old phone. Also with hit points and so on, I'm not a big fan of having the GM count all the hit points but what effect does that have on players in terms of or rather player characters in terms of physical damage and injuries the hit points in most games that i can think of don't really reflect on the ability of the player character yeah so your character's broken their leg that's fairly tangible we can build that in but if they've just taken let's say six hit points damage from a, a wound to the shoulder yeah it's kind of six hit points down you've lost some hit point resources but it doesn't really have any impact on the play yeah and and you know there we're talking about fairly big things as well and um i mean, next episode we're going to be talking about the film of the ritual um but yeah, I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the book here, because this is something that doesn't come so much into the film. During the course of the ritual, you've got two characters who become kind of mildly injured, one of whom twists their knee and the other of whom, you know, has just got ill-fitting boots and gets blisters. And the latter one in particular doesn't really sound that serious. I mean, if you were in a Call of Cthulhu game to sort of say, oh, your character's getting blisters, it's, oh, yeah, okay, well, a shogger's going to eat so why the hell do I care about blisters? <laughs> but what happens is, in the book, they're running really low on, on resources. They're running out of water, they're running out of food, they're just trying to get to safety. The fact that someone has blisters and can't walk properly and can't walk as fast as they could is like the difference between life life and death for them but i mean yeah asking both of you i mean if you're running a game i mean how would you actually make the effects of injuries scary and mechanically meaningful particularly in call of cthulhu i think it came down to the example you just gave if that somebody's got blisters twisted knee then it's going to reduce their movement speed and if something is chasing after them they become more vulnerable whereas a loss of hit points doesn't directly make you more vulnerable to anything I don't know, how would you increase the fear based on characters taking damage like that? It's one thing that Cult actually does fairly well in the in the new rule set for Cult Divinity Lost, that each of your harm points that you take, you have to describe what the wound is. So it is something tangible that they're recording, as well as having that abstract hit point ticking off box. But in terms of how that affects what the characters can do, I mean, is that just down to role playing on the part of the player and and the GM perhaps sort of saying, "Oh, you know, you, you might not be able to use that two-handed fire axe as you're missing three fingers on your left hand now." Yeah, or your arm, or your right arm's broken when you're right-handed. It's colour, and it does limit what type of actions that they can perform but not necessarily having a mechanical effect in that sense. It's not like you're modifying the dice result or you're having to um, adjust certain skills or you're taking and th- penalties. And I think on the whole, I prefer that as, as descriptive colour. And I've seen it in some other games. Mm. When you start impacting people mechanically for wounds, particularly lesser wounds or, or even greater wounds, their character starts to be less effective and suddenly it's like, well, I can't really do anything here anyway. 
But on the other hand, I mean, is survival horror about the characters becoming less effective? If you, you suddenly find that you can't use the same weapons as you could or that you're weaker because of blood loss or something like that, is that enhancing the horror or is it just creating frustration? I, generally, I think it's creating frustration. I think you start off particularly looking at a game with Call of Cthulhu as a regular human. You're not that effective against most monsters. If you start taking a penalty die or, you know, minus 20% or, you know, you can only act once every other round or something, it suddenly becomes, okay, I can't really do anything here. Especially when it gets into a combat situation like that where those mechanics kind of come into play, you're sat at the table basically doing nothing for a longer yeah. period of time. Yeah, and all that yeah. shit. Like the stunned effect um, that we see in some other games. Oh, like Savage Worlds where yeah. it has the shaken mechanic, yeah, or... To some extent, the conditions in uh, some of the Second Dead World of Darkness games or Chronicles of Darkness games that they are now done, they have very specific mechanics for different types of conditions, like a broken arm, a broken leg does this, does this, and they will stack. So, yeah, that can be very unfun at and times. I can see well. why they put those in, but as a player, that just tends to suck fun out of it yeah yeah i i, I think you know if you've got a, a group that trusts each other then you know relying on role playing for these things uh, helps i mean, you know thinking very specifically about the example of call of cthulhu I, I think if i wanted to sort of ramp this up and play this up in a call of cthulhu game i'd do a couple of things i'd use the optional hit location and table perhaps so that if someone got a head wound they might be concussed they might have problems with their vision because they've got blood in their eyes or you know they might not be able to hear properly because their ears are ringing if they were concussed i might even use the rules for delusions you know as if they were having a, a, a bout of insanity that they can't quite trust their perceptions because their brains are swollen slightly in their head the other is use a lot of these wounds or the effects of them as color initially but then sort of really play them up as the consequences for fumbles and failed push rolls and stuff like that oh definitely yeah 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 that you know that that wound you got to your arm before you've just uh, failed your pushed climb roll or something like that at this stage your your left arm finally gives out you know maybe it even fractures more spectacularly yeah the bones sticking out yeah. through the skin you know bring yeah. on the horror of that uh, but don't necessarily inflict more damage it's just you know more horror more color to the to the scene yeah yeah which kind of brings home the desperation of it without it just being a mechanical millstone around the player's neck it's probably one of the reasons I don't like to play or run survival horror that much, that it is that aspect of frustration when the rules get to that point where the game suddenly just stops being fun because the mechanics really get in the way. Yeah, I mean, this is perhaps one thing that Dead of Night does really well because it abstracts all these things into survival points. That instead of sort of saying, right, you're at minus 20% on this roll because of this effect now and, you know, you can't use this weapon anymore and your movement rate has gone down to this, just, you know, this bad thing has happened, you lose a survival point. Yeah, I think Dead of Night is really good for that. And it has that countdown, doesn't it? So you're you're immune to damage and, and so on until those those points kind of run down everything sort of stacks up against you it's almost designed for survival horror absolutely yeah um i mean my issue with running survival horror in a call of cthulhu game is that to me survival horror is about the protagonists slowly dying off one by one but if you've got a group of five or six players and you're going to start killing them off even just halfway through the game what do you do with those players that are sat there for two hours with nothing to do I've yeah. seen that happen. It's a very uncomfortable position to be in when you think, holy shit, well, this is two hours of this uh, poor sod watching the rest of the game unfold. Exactly. 
Or do you leave all the, the dying of the player characters until the last 10 minutes? Well, it's fine, but is that really survival horror? I, I so think, can I you think really... it can be, yeah. I, I think there's plenty of examples in media of survival horror where that attrition doesn't necessarily involve death. I mean, it involves people getting wounded. It involves them, uh, you know, losing resources. It involves them getting into worse and worse situations and further away from any hope of salvation. But you don't have to kill off the characters. You're just making their position steadily more untenable and, you know, building that sense of desperation. No, no, I've certainly run plenty of survival horror games, particularly with things like Dead of Night, but, you know, to some extent with Call of Cthulhu, where I haven't killed any characters until the end. Um, You know, at the end, it may well end up as a TPK because their situation is so completely screwed. There, there is a way I can think of that Paul got round it a little while ago with one of the scenarios that we play tested, that you had a stack of NPCs yeah. in the middle of the table, which you have, without trying to be spoilerific, you have a situation where it's an enclosed group of people. Obviously, the player characters can't play everyone, so as they eventually get killed off, you just take another sheet off the top of the pile and you're, um, congratulations, you're playing who was previously an NPC up until that point. we come up with some survival horror plot hooks. For me, I'd have to turn the, every single fucking trope upside down. Things like, survive till midnight, no, survive till dawn, no, you survive till sunset. So come up, <laughs> come, come up with and invert every single thing you can about the genre, because that's the one way I'm going to remain interested at the game table. Oh, I mean, along those lines, what if you're playing a group of vampires? Who are the goodies? Yeah. Yeah. And Sparkle. fucking sparkling Uh, but yeah you're playing a group of vampires who've been caught out in the open what was the uh, near dark Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that is that the Catherine Bigelow one yes yes yes, I have seen that so you've got this group of of roving vampires the protagonists in this moving from town to town uh, in this blacked out uh, truck Mm -hmm. you know what if something happens what if you know they're out there on the road and you know the truck breaks down it not only breaks down but the engine catches fire they're out in the middle of nowhere and the one thing that's going to keep the light off them and stop them from burning alive is on fire you know, you start with that as the opening scene right what do you do burn baby burn <laughs> well that's hey. the title for the scenario there you go yeah <laughs> hey, you could do it in something like um either of the iterations of vampire that you could have the group stuck up in one of their havens uh, maybe a rival has found that they've uh, where they're living and obviously wants to take them out of the equation. So hires the one group of one adversary that can act during the day, either ghouls or mundane mortal authorities, to start uh, start trying to take them down. I guess the one that occurs to me uh, for horror in a Cthulhu universe where you're trying to survive against overwhelming odds would be a kind of end time scenario. Really, a rises Cthulhu's there. Deep ones are roaming through the streets. The ghouls come up through the sewers. I don't know, every monster starts appearing and the masses of humanity start getting wiped out and we start hauling ourselves up in little hidden enclaves. You know, again, a bit like Day of the Triffids, just trying to survive. But this is sounding more like, for humanity, a bit more like the road. You know, every day is getting darker and shorter and if you've seen the road, is there any hope? I'm not sure there is. 
But if you took more like the Walking Dead approach, then you, you suddenly have, you know, perhaps that resource management side of things as well. Of Yeah, it's all very well, you're holed up in your enclave, but what do you do when the food starts running out? What do you do when your, your water supply becomes contaminated? Do you risk trying to go somewhere else? Do you send parties go, you know, out to try to get the necessary supplies? And if so, you know, what kind of danger are they in? Does that mean that the enclave is now unprotected as all the toughest people are out gathering tins of beans? And is it just our country? Is the next country across the ocean also afflicted in the same way? I mean, if it's end times, then you kind of get the impression that it's the whole world. But in Day of the Triffids, they're not so sure, are they? Yeah. One that occurs to me is we, we see in Call of Cthulhu an awful lot the idea of gate spells or these gateways to, to distant worlds. None of these places that are off-world are really necessarily that human-friendly. And I, I, I keep thinking about, for example, a group of investigators who perhaps deliberately or accidentally stumble or flee through a gate that takes them to Yugoth. So you've got this this place that's that's lightless, that is filled with um, you know hostile alien creatures, that is cold. I, we're not even convinced that people can breathe there. I mean, you know, that'd I'm, be let, quite a short game then. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but <laughs> how long can you hold your breath? <laughs> but but let's say, for example, that it was you know um, uh, so, say some contrived thing whereby you know someone sets up a gate and the people on the international space station or whatever end up on Yogurth. That you know they've got limited air supplies. They're trying to find a way back off. Mm. Yeah, so you had that whole resource management side of things. You have the hostile environment. You have perhaps being stalked by the Mego. And you're desperately trying to reopen the gate, I guess, as yeah. well. There's a good Delta Green short story. I'm pretty certain it's in Dark, the Dark Theatres collection that would prove a good piece of inspiration there. It's, uh, I think it's a group of Saucer Watch uh, members that end up taking a ride in a saucer to Yogoth. Oh, gosh. Uh, okay. to, to a pre-set-up environment where there are the various buildings have been filled with an oxygen supply, but just so they could be played with. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And that idea of desperately trying to open the gate to get somewhere else kind of makes me think of sliders. Oh, yes. Where, yeah. you know, they do open the gate and they go through, oh, but it's to some other terrible place. And then they've got to try and open it again. And, you know, they're going through time and space to all Yay. the worst places. We fled Yogurth. Oh, shit. Leng. <laughs> oh, no, it's prehistoric Earth. <laughs> and the court of Azathoth. Uh, uh. And the other one that occurs to me as well, we talked about the idea of unkillable monsters uh, and being stalked by them. And the classic for me in Call of Cthulhu is always the Hound of Tindalos. I think as soon as you've got a Hound of Tindalos in your game, unless you're doing something really unusual with it, it's a survival horror game. Because you have this thing that that is stalking you, that can move through time, that can peer wherever there's a right angle, and is relentless and unkillable or you know, practically unkillable to, to humans you just get down the hardware store buy up some cement <laughs> fill in all the corners <laughs> stay in the room there is actually a very good short story along those lines in the private life of elder things where someone does exactly that i think that's also what the main professor does in the original frank belknap long story isn't it the yeah. blocks up all the corners of the room but but in this other story, is done to slightly more horrific effect. Yeah, so someone who spent years there. 
I think the idea of being stalked by something you can't kill like that is inherently terrifying because your options really are limited to defensive actions, to running away and trying to come up with with desperate ways of of warding off the inevitable. And and Oh yeah, that that is part of the horror for me. It's that that nightmare feeling of the inevitable, almost a, a memento mori. It's the fact that you are facing what feels like imminent death, and all you're doing is buying yourself more time. If it does start to feel totally inevitable, and there's clearly nothing we can do, that can cause a sense of disconnection as well. I think. I think where the horror comes in, and, and this is a very delicate balancing act in a game, is the fact that you've got to ramp up to that realisation. You've got to offer false hope to begin with. And then, you know, as the investigators learn more about it, you know, understand their situation better, by the time they get to the end, you realise that, no, it is completely hopeless. They so, are not getting out of yeah, this Yeah, so like a final scene realisation. Yeah. yeah. OK, yeah, I can buy that. But if, if you get that realisation halfway through the game, it's like, well... There's no point in carrying on. Yeah, It's like the thing. That realisation doesn't come until about 10 or 15 minutes before the end. That's kind of the perfect timing when it sets up the, the end game situation. Thank you. Thank you. Well then, once again, we would like to thank each and every person who has given us money. Uh, we have a Patreon account, and, and lovely people out there give us money through it. We use this money to pay for the podcast, to pay for equipment, hosting costs, bandwidth costs, and basically to fuel all the work that goes into it. Uh, so thank you to each and every one of you, and we have some new people to thank. Yes, indeed. Coming in at the $3 level, we have a big thanks to Eric Setterberg. Thank you very much, Eric, and cheers. Indeed. Cheers, Eric. And continuing with this episode's theme of unspeakable horrors that can only be endured or survived, we come to the $5 level where people have brought down upon themselves that most hideous of horrors, our singing. I'd like to hope that they did survive because otherwise it'd be a bit difficult to maintain a listenership. You, you raise a good point there. We, we shall gauge our singing appropriately for the... No, no, what, what am I saying? No, we won't. <laughs> we, we've been trying to sing for ages and it hasn't worked. We just yeah. keep making noises. So, yes, I mean, for, for those of you who haven't encountered this particular part of the, uh, the podcast before, uh, we thank people who give us $5 or, or more per episode by literally singing their praises. Uh, and, and we have two people, I believe, to do that to this week. I think we finally actually got through the backlog, haven't we? And this week, our first victim is David Gaskin. Thank you very much, David. Thank you, David. And, and prepare yourself. And yes, I, our next person to sing to is Brian James Dimmitt. So thank you, Brian. Oh boy, thank you, Brian. Thank you very much, Brian. 
thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, 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 Brian James Dimmit. Thank you. Oh God. Oh, no. There's only two of us oh, now. Brian James Dimmitt, save us. Save yes, us. Thank we you, got, John. We got, we, got, we, got, we, got, we got to thank him. Save us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ah! It's only me now. Thank you, Brian. I can see them coming. On social media. Now we've had a new iTunes review. In well, fact, it says here an updated iTunes review from Anthologus. Yeah, th th this is fascinating. I didn't realise he could do this. But Anthologus has gone through and amended his or her original iTunes review and, and put a whole new section on there. It, it's, it's like magic to me. I <laughs> <laughs> is he like, oh, wait a minute, I've changed my mind. <laughs> no, no. I okay. mean, the original, the original review is still there. This is just an annotation. Marvelous. I'm still an avid listener and Patreon backer after several years, and still find myself listening to their old episodes with great joy and intellectual pleasure. Scott, Paul, and Matt share a darkly infectious enthusiasm for their hobby, and this podcast has honestly been one of my greatest game-related pleasures over the last few years. Hey, we're doing something right. My only regret is that I'm unable to share a game and a story or two with them in person. But the airwaves, so to speak, are a fair substitute. As are their writings, which are as clever as their on-air personalities. If you have not listened yet and have any interest in Call of Cthulhu, role-playing games more generally, horror, dark narratives of any sort, or just good humour and friendship, you should try the Good Friends podcast post-haste and sample their various writings as well. You will never be disappointed. Oh, that's bloody marvellous. Thank you very much. Oh, that's very kind. Thank hey. you very much for that iTunes review. Actually, one thing that we'll address in the next episode as well, I mean, we focus very much on iTunes reviews because we've got an automatic tool that, that sends those to us. But people do review us in other places. And, you know, just because we keep mentioning iTunes, you know, if you want to leave us a review, yeah, I mean, we'd love it on iTunes, but we'd love it anywhere else you get your podcast from if you can review it. And uh, we'll try to share the love around a bit more next time. And we've also had some feedback about our recent episode about Yog Sothoth. First off... From Christopher Smith Adair on our Google Plus community. I think there is some use in the family trees that H.P. Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith created, using them in the same fashion discussed in the episode. These things aren't necessarily true, but humans are pattern-making animals, so tomes, scholarly pieces, and cultists may have various ideas regarding connections between cosmic entities. They argue about whose aunt's who... Who's half brothers? Who, who, who begat who? Who's stopping who? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's it's like gossip mags, you know, celebrity gossip mags for the cosmic entity. Mythos Heat magazine. Yeah. <laughs> now there's actually something that could justify that rags existence. There yeah, but, but but uh, Cthulhu would just be the cover model every month, wouldn't, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> hmm, hmm. I don't know. Your oh. Dolan axe a pretty sexy beast. No, <laughs> it was a pun, Matt. Hmm? It was a puntastic thing from from Scott there because it was Heat magazine. Oh yeah, but um. <laughs> well, over our heads, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's what happens when you have a highbrow sense of humour like mine. 
But you know, I, th- I think that's actually a good point. I mean, this is something we talk about every now and then, which is the idea that you know cultists don't know anywhere near as much as they think they do, and the idea that these things are important to cultists that they think they've got all the answers. It's probably not something that's ever going to become important in game terms, but it, it does reinforce that idea, which I like. That yeah, we, we are trying to apply human understanding to things that you know are just beyond it. Also over on G+, Linus Larson comments, I'm rather fond of the image of Yogg-Sothoth as a collection of spheres. I imagine it being bulbous shapes that become visible in our three-dimensional space as Yogg-Sothoth intersects with our reality. To visualise the idea, imagine we are two-dimensional beings living in a two-dimensional world. You've pretty much summed up my life between 8.30 and 5 every Monday to Friday, (laughs) I realise that. If a three-dimensional tentacle intersects with our flat reality, we would only be able to perceive a two-dimensional cross-section of it. A 3D human passing through this flat reality would be something akin to seeing a full-body MRI scan appearing and disappearing out of thin air. I mean, Linus mm. does go on, I think, to quite a large extent explaining this in, in terms particularly of, of uh, the classic book Flatland by Edwin Abbott, I think. I'll link to this discussion thread from the show notes. But, yeah, I think, I think this is something that I'm sort of kicking myself for not having picked up on in the, the original script because yeah, it's something that's been on my mind a lot recently because of a different project we're working on, you know, multidimensional extrusions into three-dimensional space. And, yeah, it makes perfect sense in this context. I keep thinking back to that classic episode of Treehouse of Horror from The Simpsons, the mythical third dimension that uh, Professor Frink comes up with. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean that was very much a play on Flatland. Uh, mm. And, you know, if this kind of thing appeals to you, I, I highly recommend Flatland. Oh, OK. Is that where Flat Stanley's from? Uh, y- yes. Flat Stanley. He's the two-dimensional kid in a kid's book flat stanley look him up that's the horror i'll do that you'll you'll only look him up and sideways yeah yeah (laughs) and also from lee williams on our google plus community and a number of other people by all accounts tell paul it's now i'm going to try and do this because you're telling me in writing to read something correctly which i read incorrectly before (laughs) from writing so interstices interstices I got it wrong. I knew I got it wrong at the time. I'm yeah. still not sure I've got it right. Well, Christine Fisher elaborated a bit more, saying, from the world of science, at least in the US, is interstitial or interstices. It's one of these words I've only ever seen written down, so I have no idea if the British pronunciation is different. Um, I will take you at your word there. Yes, we apologise to anyone whose teeth were put on edge by that pronunciation. And now, as promised, here's my interview with Susan O'Brien of Chaosium about the new Miskatonic University board game. Okay, so I'm joined by Susan O'Brien of Chaosium to talk about the new Chaosium board game. So, hi, Susan. Hi, Paul. To begin with, can I ask you just to say a little bit about yourself and your time with Chaosium? Um, Sure. Um, I'm the board game's line editor for Chaosium. Um, I started doing that about a year ago, but before that, I was working for Chaosium and Moon Design behind the behind the scenes, doing editing and proofreading, etc. In fact, I've got a connection with Chaosium going back many many years, because as 
many people will know, my husband's Michael O'Brien, and he's been writing for, for RuneQuest for too many years ago that I can care to remember. You, you get sucked into it for proofreading and all sorts of things. So, Oh, sure thing. Yeah, yeah. It's been, yeah. It's been a lovely relationship. So is this the first board game that you've worked on? No, I um, worked on the Khan of Khans game, a game set in Glorantha, which is the, the world of uh, RuneQuest, and that game was also designed by Rainer Knizia, and um, we put that out last year. So the new board game is called Miskatonic University, the Restricted Collection Board Game, and as you said, designed by Rainer Knizia. Now, if listeners don't know... Do you want to say a little about who Rainer Knitzier is for listeners who don't know the name? I can't imagine there's many people who haven't heard that name if you're into no, board games. He's, but he's a pretty famous board game designer. I, I think he's a genius, board game design genius, and he's done many games. Um, I guess off the top of my head, there's so many Lost Cities. Um, there are just so many. If you go into any board game shop, you, you know, you're going to see his games. There are, yeah, there are so many with his name on and so many great games that I've played that you look at the designer, oh, it's one of his. Yeah, he's just a, I, I totally agree. The man's a genius. Yeah, yeah. So I'm excited to see that his name is on this game. Yes, it's fantastic. Um, we actually had a really great team behind the game, similar to Kind of Khan's. We had Rainer Knizia working on that as well as Ian O'Toole who um, is a fantastic illustrator and graphic designer and so the team's back to do this game so there's uh, also as well as that we have Mike Mason helping who's the um, Call of Cthulhu line editor for KRCM. And could you just give us a, a brief pitch about the game and what and you know what it's about how it works? Well it's a push-a-luck uh, filler game. It takes about 30 minutes or so to play. In true Lovecraftian style, the players are seekers of secret wisdom. And the backstory for the game is that the reckless graduate students have unleashed a nameless horror from the bowels of Miskatonic University's famous Orn Library. The players play Miskatonic University professors who have to search the treacherous restricted collection and looking for fragments of lore and sigils to help Henry Armitage defeat this monster. But nothing is quite so simple, and there, there's a price, of course, for forbidden knowledge. The deeper you go, the more you push your luck, the more that you risk your sanity. I played a like a playtest version of this at Games Expo a almost 12 months ago now. And I have to say, it was a really fun game. And the thing I liked was this really clever mechanic. I don't remember it exactly now, but it was kind of like you say, pushing your luck. You could you could take risks and kind of gamble what you collected against getting more or something like that. And it was, it was kind of a, a fun aspect of the game. That's right. So you entered the the library, the restricted collection, five times, and then you can decide to stay in the library or to leave it. There's that uh, that aspect of pushing your luck. You know, if you stay, then you're more likely to get the points, but then you might get expelled as well and not get anything. So, and then there's also your defence cards. So you've got various cards which you can use in order to help you 
stay in the collection. And when you use those and how you use those is, is the main strategy of the game. So you said this takes about half an hour to play. And how many people can play? From two players to five players. Yeah, cool. And I asked my wife last night, because we play quite a lot of board games with the, with our family, and I said to her, you know, if I'm going to be interviewing a board game designer tomorrow, what questions would you have for her about a new game? And she put three questions forwards. Um, the first one was, how do the pieces feel? So what's the kind of, you know, what are we actually handling? Because that wouldn't have occurred to me, but... So it's it's cardboard, right? Yeah. So it's basically um, cards, and but the the key thing is the player mat. The player mat, which will be different from the from the prototype that you played a year ago, the player mat has little notches in it so that you you slot the cards into their spots against the player mat. If you go onto the Kickstarter page, there's a there's a GIF there that shows how player map works. Yeah, because having played it that once with the you know the prototype, having seen the new version of it, I, as soon as I saw that, I thought, oh, that looks really cool because the pieces that you're collecting, there's actually a place for them to go. It feels like you know you're slotting pieces into a puzzle. Yes, that's right. And the and the sigil, the Elder Sign sigil, has got three pieces, which sort of three cards, which sort of overlap and fit into the to the player mat, which is a yeah nifty mechanic there. I think yeah. The second question she had was, how long do you spend between turns? Because some games, you know, you play them and there's like interminable waits between goes. In that, when you're playing the game, you basically take turns to take a card, so. That's usually pretty quick. And the third question, and this is something that we find kind of divides us as a family a bit, is some of us like more strategic games and some of us favor games with a bit more luck in them. So would you say this sort of sits, you know, there's a bit of a balance between the two or is it more strategic or more kind of luck-based? Well, the thing is that I think is quite good with the game is that you can just play it without really worrying too much about strategy. But there is that underlying strategy about what's the risk of doing of using this defense card. What's when should I use it? What's the probability of me turning up a duplicate card and getting expelled? So there is the strategy in there as well. Sure. So it's a good balance of, of the two. Can I ask you a little about the Kickstarter? So the Kickstarter runs, I think, until the eighth of May. Am I correct? I believe that is at five minutes past two Eastern Standard Time in the US PM, which I know is going to be five past four in the morning for me. So on the, on the 9th of May, I'm going to have a very late night or early morning, I think late night. <laughs> oh, you sure are. Because there's usually that rush at the end of a Kickstarter. That's right. It gets all exciting and so on. Yeah. Anyway, that'll be all right. So you'll be able to celebrate at breakfast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so people back in the game, having had a quick look at the, the, the website, I can see that $25, I can back it and get a copy of the game. That's right. For $25, you, you get the basic game. There's also a pledge level for $45 where you get two copies of the game. That's the librarian level. 
So you, you get a little bit of a discount there. And then there's other pledge levels which are higher. So ones for being named as the dean or so on. Also, we've had some stretch goals, which mean that everybody gets a bachelor's degree diploma. We turned Miskatonic University into a diploma mill. <laughs> so everybody gets a bachelor's degree and we've actually passed a stretch goal as well where everybody gets a master's degree. But we're being a little bit um, – it's a little bit harder to get the master's degree because that's only for those who, who back $25 and above, not for the, for the $1 backers. And you never know, if we keep going, we might be throwing away honorary doctorates as well. So we can all be Professor Armitage before long. Yes. Yes, why not? <laughs> There's the old bugbear of postage. So we don't know quite how much postage is going to be, but can you comment on the uh, cost of postage? We don't know for sure because we don't know the exact shipping weight of the final game and, and so on, but we can estimate it. We've got in the in the Kickstarter, in the FAQs, there's some some estimates of that. In the UK, um, we're estimating that the shipping would be $9. Okay, marvellous. Um, so, Susan, is there anything else you want to tell us before we end here? One thing that I haven't mentioned is that we are going to have the rules in French, German and Italian. Oh, okay, marvellous. Yeah, so we had them as stretch goals and we also put up a pledge level for you could be named as the associate dean for, for French and francophone affairs, etc. One for German, one for Italian as well. Okay. Well, I'm pretty sure we do have listeners in those places. So if you're interested, then, you know, get on board. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Susan. And once more, I'll just say that the Kickstarter ends on the 8th of May. Until then, thanks very much. So goodbye, Sue. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well then, to wrap things up, do we find survival horror a useful or fun genre to approach in tabletop gaming, particularly Call of Cthulhu? Personally, no. It's a bit too limited and can have too many pitfalls, like we've discussed around mechanics, that it can suck a lot of the life and the fun out of a game. You either get bogged down in resource management, which is about as fun as watching paint dry, or you just have the same repetitive run or get killed by a monster, hide out. It's a bit too basic and a bit too formulaic for my taste. I can see how it can be fun, but it's just not my thing. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'd say that if you take the same reductive approach to any genre of horror and just look at its sort of major representations and a very superficial view of it, you can apply pretty much the same criticisms and sort of say, yo, it's just repetitive, it's formulaic, it's rote. I, I think, as with all these things, the approaching you know, a form like that and trying to find ways of, of reinventing it and, and making it your own and, and bring it to life, I mean, that's the challenge. I think it's harder with that framework. It's much easier to do it with something like a traditional investigative framework because you've mm. got more options, more variations. But with something that's that basic, it does become problematic finding new ways to make it fun and interesting. It can be done to very great effect, like the examples that we've discussed, but I think it's just harder. I think it lends itself well to one-shot games, oh, which is something we haven't mentioned. A survival horror campaign? We had the example on that front of The Walking Dead, which effectively is a survival horror campaign. Uh, so I, I guess it could be done, but having looked at how well the TV series has turned out over time, 
you know, that, that may be an example of why it doesn't work in the long term. Right. I mean, it's one of the most popular shows, though, right? Uh, yeah, except its popularity has really dropped off in the, the last couple of years, and it's now struggling. I mean, it was for a long time the most popular thing on television. But I think, you know, what you're saying there is, you know, exactly right, that, you know, it doesn't necessarily have legs. It seems like if we take survival horror as a thing that we see in most films, it would lend itself well to, as we've said, a computer game. Likewise, it lends itself well to a board game because there's this sense of almost a competitive element. You're struggling to survive. Pretty much any role-playing game, survival is an aspect because you're trying to survive. There's usually something out there that's an adversary. So survival is kind of a, an essential, but often games aren't about survival. So I think if you're going to have a survival game, there's got to be an element of almost competition to try struggling to survive. And within inherent in that really is the fact that not everybody is surviving. And if people are dying off early on in the game, as I said, I think that's a, it's a problem in a traditional role-playing game. I think there are ways around it, as we mentioned with bringing in, picking up NPCs and so on, or people just dying off right at the end or the, the end of the one shot being the realization that you know there is no hope we are all going to die but then is that then survival horror i'm not sure yeah i i personally find survival horror at least for one shots far more interesting than investigative games because i think it is much purer to the nature of horror and when i play a horror game i want it to be horrific um, investigative games often feel to me, you know, diluted. But does it just divide into investigative or no. survival horror? No, no, I don't no. think I mean, so. The, no, so. The, no I, I, from that point of view, I mean, some of the greatest one-shots I've had, you know, both as a GM and as a, a player, uh, in terms of tension, action, atmosphere, you know, and, and fear have been uh, games that I'd, I'd, certainly, I'd certainly describe as survival horror. Personally, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, I understand that it's a difficult thing to pull off well, but I think if it's done well, then, yeah, it's, it's a very pure experience. Well, that's all the survival horror we've got for you this week, so until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. BlasphemousTomes.com And one final bit of news. Mike Mason and myself will be doing an Ask Me Anything session on Reddit starting on Sunday the 6th of May and running for one week. Look at the website for details, blasphemoustomes.com. We're doomed! We're doomed!